Well, good morning, everyone. Man, I can't begin to tell you how excited I am to be here. R- really, I, I, I just was uh, uh, standing worshiping through this extraordinary experience of being able to hear from God and express to God simultaneously through the words of these songs. And I was thinking to myself, what an unbelievable privilege it is that God allows us to gather regularly to enter into the grand story that he has revealed to us through the word of God that we might discover the things that God himself wants to speak to us so that we might be transformed to be more like him and then live in the freedom that that affects for us. I mean, that is an extraordinary privilege. We should not have that privilege. So I am extremely excited to be here this morning to be able to wrestle with you through the story of God to see what the Spirit of God wants to do in all of us as he invites us into greater freedom as we submit ourselves more greatly to his incredible story. So what have we been doing? Over the last uh, almost decade now, we've been traveling chronologically through the story of God. We started in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and we have been making our way through slowly. We have landed uh, in the last few years in the book of Acts. So the context there is the uh, early New Testament church as it is unfolding, as the Spirit of God is at, at work and moving through that church. And most recently we have encountered Paul and we've been traveling with Paul, a great church planter missionary who is moving through the known world, sharing the gospel and planting churches. Uh, He was on his first journey, then his second journey. We are now with him on his third journey. And he is currently in the city of Ephesus, just across from the Aegean Sea, across from Macedonia and Achaia. He was in Achaia before in a city named Corinth. And there he shared the gospel and planted a church. While in Ephesus... He received word from Corinth that the church was struggling uh, in the way that they were behaving and the view they had of what it meant to know and follow Jesus. So he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, a very instructive letter. Most of the letter was just instructions on how to live our lives as a community of God in view of the wonders of God. He wrote that letter to them. It went well. Then some Jews, Palestinian Jews from Jerusalem came up. They stirred things up in Corinth uh, and they started convincing the Corinthian church that Paul was out of his mind because they wanted to take Paul's place in authority and in uh, notoriety so that they could extract for themselves a living out of the church in Corinth. That word came to Paul again, and this time Paul left Ephesus to go and visit with the church in Corinth because he felt he needed to personally go there to undo the stirring that had been done. That visit did not go well. We don't know much detail, but it went really badly. Uh, Paul was deeply hurt and offended by the church in Corinth. Uh, Even after leaving, there was word that it was even worse. And so Paul wrote a very severe letter to the church in Corinth. We don't have access to that letter. It's not in the scriptures. Uh, It was very severe. That's all we know. Paul actually regretted writing that letter because he says it in 2 Corinthians, which is the third letter. He says, I regretted writing that letter at first. But now that I know what that letter has done in you, I'm glad it called you to repentance. That was a big letter. And then 
Paul travels up to Macedonia. He's going to now head down. He wants to visit the church in Corinth. They sec- uh, this would be a third visit now. But he is hesitant to visit them because of the second visit that went so badly. So he writes a third letter that we know as 2 Corinthians to kind of prepare the way and say, I ain't coming till you read this letter and you guys get yourselves prepped because if I come down there and it goes like the second time again, it's not gonna go well for any of us. And so this letter that we encounter called 2 Corinthians is the letter he sends to the church to prepare them for the ability to come and visit them a third time. Now I am very excited about this letter and I'll tell you why. The first letter was uh, incredibly instructive, we know that. But the most beautiful part of the first letter was where it started and where it ended because it bookended all of the instruction with the extraordinary beauty of the gospel, the redemptive story of God. It started with Paul saying, I come and boast nothing but Christ with you. And so he talks about the gospel. Then he instructs, 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 instructs. And the book ends with, remember, this is all because of and for the gospel and the glory of God. And so uh, this book, with all of the instruction, very practical, the most beautiful part of the book was the gospel on each end. Do you know what 2 Corinthians really essentially is? It is an expansion on the bookends of the first book. It is instructive in some ways, without a doubt, but not nearly so much in the practical, here's how you do it, as much as in the beauty of why we do it. The entire book of 2 Corinthians is gonna bleed out to us the gospel all the time, saying here's what's behind everything we do. Here's the beauty of the theology and the doctrine and the reality of what Christ has done so that we can live in it. We are gonna encounter in 2 Corinthians some of the most extraordinary unpackings of the beauty of what's happening in the gospel than we will find almost anywhere in scripture. And so this is an exciting book. So with no further ado, let's jump in because we have already begun last week and last week we covered an entire two verses of the book. So (laughs) let's jump into 2 Corinthians. We're gonna go to chapter one of 2 Corinthians, page 666 of 2 Corinthians, page 666. This book is now going to begin to lay out for us the interchange that has taken place between us and God, where Jesus took on what we were so that we could take on what he is. And in that, the book is gonna consistently say, since he has taken on what we were, and since we have taken on what he is, we now ought to live as he lives, right? And that's what we're gonna encounter. So where does this beautiful journey begin? Well, it begins right here. Remember last week, just as a reminder, we ended with this verse, verse two. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. An extraordinary start for Paul, considering that this is a people that has stabbed him in the back multiple times, still functionally uh, thinks bad things about him, still functionally is in some way an enemy of his, even though he poured his life blood out for them, and he begins with grace to you and peace, but from who? Not from Paul, 
from God. Because Paul is saying, I have no grace and peace to give you, but God has much grace and peace to give you despite my humanity, despite your insanity. And so I'm going to affect God's grace on you because he is gracious. And now Paul is going to start us out reminding us of who this God is that he can say, despite your insanity, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Watch this. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now he's tying that to verse 2. I'm going to tell you who this is. The Father of mercies. We've got to stop there. There's too much there. The Father of mercies. Do you see what he just did? In consideration of who he's writing to, an insane people acting foolishly, he's like the grace and peace I give you from God is because the God from whom I give it to you is a God of mercies. Always a God of mercies. What is mercy, folks? Mercy is the holding back of a deserved wrath in consideration of your behavior. So when you behave in such a way that you have, that you have earned the right for wrath, mercy is holding back that wrath even though you deserve it. And the gospel will always begin here. Thank goodness God is a God of mercies. Because if God is not a God of mercies, then we are dead. Then we are dead in our sin, dead in our transgressions, and we have nothing. And so that is why Paul can write later on to the church in Rome in chapter 12 of the book of Romans. Therefore, dear brothers, in view of God's mercies, present yourself as living sacrifices. It always has to be in view of God's mercy. Because the gospel always begins with the mercies of God. The gospel as it encounters us the first time we discover it and the gospel as we encounter it day in and day out in the midst of our foolishness, it is always starting with this, the God of all mercies. And so it is this God of mercy that we encounter as we open this book and it is the God of mercy that will mark the rest of this letter as we journey through it. What a way to start. The God of, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Oh my goodness, doesn't that just feel incredible just hearing those words? You on planet Earth, you are dealing with other human beings of whom all have a certain level of foolishness in them waiting to be released, right? And so this is gonna be a wild ride. And he's writing to the church in Corinth saying, you guys are currently foolish. But by God's grace and because of God's peace that he will affect, the God of mercies will comfort you in the midst of your insanity. He will comfort you in the implications of that insanity as you travel through the sanctifying or becoming like Jesus process on this planet. What a joy it is that we know that as we encounter the realities of planet Earth, whether on mission, whether the recipients of other people's sinfulness, or whether the recipients of sin and death on the planet as a whole, that God says to us, I am the God of mercies, and I will be for you the God of all comfort. That is a big deal. That's where we start. And to whom? To the church in Corinth, who deserves none of these things. And then he says this. Who comforts us in all our afflictions. 
who comforts us in all of our afflictions. Now you're anticipating me next going like this. What a joy it is that God comforts us in all of our afflictions. Wow, what amazing thing that is. But when I first read this verse, that is not the feeling I had. That's where I stopped. I hit the pause button. I'm like, hold, hold. I get the God of all comfort. I get the God of all mercies. But comforting me in all my affliction, that has not been my experience. You go, really? No, really. It's not been my experience. I mean, he's comforted me in some of my affliction, but not in all. There have been many afflictions in which I begged for comfort, and comfort did not come. And so when the Bible says something like this, the God who comforts you in all your affliction, I start getting nervous and go, either the Bible's wrong or I don't understand what's going on. And 110% of the time, the 10% is the extra. I'm always wrong and the Bible's always clear. So immediately I go, something is misunderstood here. Because you see, in my journey, when my wife and I were called of God uh, to step into the extraordinary story of inviting into our home not just four children, but eight children uh, in the beautiful journey of adoption four years ago now, uh, we brought these beautiful children that are our sons and daughters to our home. They entered our home a slightly different way than the other four, but they landed in the same home for the same purposes of God, right? And we thought, as we were traveling down the road in our big tractor trailer with my four kids in the trailer in the back, if we just took another tractor trailer, the other four kids, and we drove at each other fast enough, when we collided, we turned into one big tractor trailer. But that turns out not how it goes when two tractor trailers collide at 100 miles an hour. All that you get is a giant fireball and human beings running for their lives. And that's exactly what happened. We collided and it was a giant mess. There were parts everywhere, parts of our hearts, parts of our souls, parts of our minds scattered across uh, the entire planet. And the collection of trying to recover from that collision was extraordinarily hard. I watched as a husband and a father as my eight children and my wife slowly died inside. My wife's soul died. My kids' souls died. The, the beauty of their uh, following Jesus disappeared uh, into some dark place inside. And it was a constant wrestle because the darkness that was around was overwhelming. And I would drive down the highway and I would be driving home and say, God... Give me wisdom, help me, I, I help me try to save my poor family while I too am consumed under the weight of it all. And there was no comfort that came. No feeling of, oh, it's gonna be okay. You're fine. Most of it was, it's not gonna be okay. I started saying things like, well, this might kill us, but I guess that's mission, right? <laughs> I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why it felt as though there was no comfort. It is because we misunderstand the word comfort. See, the English word comfort, in this particular case, in this passage, and others like it, but this one in particular, the English word comfort holds a certain idea to it that is not actually the idea that the original Greek word intended. This is truly a beautiful example of lost in translation, okay? So, uh, the English word comfort, what does it mean? You go to the dictionary, and here's what it says. To soothe, to console, to reassure, to bring cheer. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> oh, is your family burning to death? Here, be, be of cheer. 
See that? But that is comfort, isn't it? We experience comfort when we are in a difficult place and somebody does something to relieve the pain of that place, to pull us out of it and to bring us out of the gray into the cheer. That's what we experience as comfort. If you're comforting me, you are leading me out of the discomfort, which leads us to the second uh, dictionary definition. The next line down says, to make physically comfortable. There it is. So when we say to God, God, oh God, comfort me, oh God of all comfort. Come and comfort me in all my afflictions. Our anticipation is God is going to remove us from the danger, make us physically comfortable again, bring cheer to us, and alleviate us from the pain. Right? Doesn't that sound like comfort? It does. It's in the dictionary. Except that this wasn't originally written in English. It was written in Greek. And we had to use the word comfort here because it is the only English word that could capsulate what the Greek intended word was trying to do or the intended uh, intention of the Greek word was. To say, no, 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 that's not what we're talking about. So listen to this. When Paul writes this and he says, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction, here is what the Greek word means. It means three, potentially three different things or any combination of these or all three. The Greek word means this. Watch this. To call someone to come near. Let me say that again. To call someone to come near. There's the first intent of this Greek word, right? Look at this. To make a strong appeal or exhortation. So that is to challenge you, to bring truth to you, to say, come on, come on. I, I, want, I want to appeal to you strongly for something. That would be the Greek word. That's one of the meanings of this Greek word. Not to make physically comfortable, but to make a strong appeal or exhortation. And then the third one, to treat in an inviting or friendly way. To treat in an inviting or friendly way. Do you know what this word is trying to capture as a whole? When this Greek word is used that we've translated here into the word comfort, it's trying to say this. It's one person being with another person speaking words that give courage, new hope, new direction, new insight, which will alter the way they face the next moment, the next day, and the rest of their life. That is the intent of this Greek word. So now... Allow me to read again that same sentence that's out of the scripture, but I'm going to take the word comfort out and I'm going to replace it with what the intent of this Greek word was. And watch how this changes everything about our experience of this passage. Watch this. So, the Father of all mercies, the God that calls you near with a strong appeal and exhortation so that he can treat you in a friendly manner. Wow! The God that does that for you. The God that is the person who is with you to speak into you courage and, and new insights so that you might face the next moment differently than the one before. Now let me read this again. Now I'm going to read who comforts us in all our affliction. Who in all our affliction calls us near through a strong appeal and exhortation so that he can treat us friendly by being with us and speaking into us words of courage and new insight and hope that we did not have in our affliction so that we can face the next moment differently than we did the one before. Well, now suddenly everything's changed, hasn't it? Oh, God was comforting me on that highway. Oh, he was comforting me as long as I used the word comfort appropriately. 
Was God calling me near? Oh, he was calling me near. Was God exhorting me? Oh, he was exhorting me. Was he, was he friendly toward me by bringing new hope I did not have? He was friendly toward me by bringing new hope I did not have. Did he remove me from the uncomfortability of the situation so that I might be physically comfortable? No. But that's not the intent of this word. Did he, did he alleviate my pain? Not then. He did eventually, but not then. But that's not the intent of this word. You see, the intent of this word is to say this. This is what Paul's trying to say. In affliction, the God who is with you will draw you near to himself through affliction. And when we look at our humanity, suddenly it clicks, doesn't it? When last did you or I come crying to God for his deep presence in our life on our knees when all things were blue and white clouds and beautiful stuff and we just won the lottery and everything. No, we give him a head nod of thank you, right? And for those of us that know Jesus well, we might even get on our knees and be full of gratitude. But full of gratitude is different than drawing near, isn't it? We human beings draw near to God when we have nowhere else to go. So in theory then, if God alleviated and removed any uncomfortability in affliction, if he kept us physically comfortable, he would keep us distant. He would keep us distant. But God is not a God of English comfort. He is a God of Greek comfort in this case. A comfort that invites us near. Now, that would be enough for today, wouldn't it? But there's so much more, so we gotta keep going. Listen to this. Now that Paul has said, this is how you experience comfort and affliction, now he's gonna give us the beauty of the other implications to our affliction. Look at this. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So first of all, Paul is saying, when we are in affliction and God is our comfort, calling us near to himself through a strong appeal or exhortation to be friendly toward us so that he would be the person speaking courage into us, new insight, new hope, so that we would face the next moment differently than the one we did before, then we get to do the same to others who are in affliction, no matter the affliction they are in. It does not have to be the same affliction as yours. In any affliction, we get to share in one another's lives by becoming the appeal of God through a voice of a human being. Do you see that when you are under affliction, one of the privileges that is being born in you through that affliction is that now when you get to speak into others who are in affliction, you get to be comfort to them. And what is comfort? To come alongside them, inviting them to be near to God through a strong appeal or exhortation in a way that is friendly so that they can experience new hope and see the next moment differently. Wow, we get to do that because we are in affliction. Oh, but that's not it, that's not where it stops. Watch the gospel expand here. We get to uh, be comfort to those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So what truths do we bring to them? What exhortation? What words of hope? The same ones that were brought to us. Do you see how this translates now? Now watch this, watch this. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now we've just taken a whole nother level. 
You thought it was, it was just the beauty of the comfort of God that was awesome. Nope, not done there. You thought it was that you now get to be comfort to others in a biblical manner. Nope, no, nope, doesn't stop there. We get to share in one another's lives because of affliction, but it's even better than that. He now says when you are afflicted, understand that you are living in the life of your Savior. You are sharing with Jesus in the redemptive journey that he had to take on on this planet to rescue your soul, and now you get to be on planet Earth under affliction for his sake. He's not saying you will only suffer on this planet. That's not what he's saying. He says you will suffer on this planet. And you suffer on this planet because Jesus didn't bother to take you home to your full experience of redemption the second you came to Jesus, which to you might say, why not? I mean, if you save my soul, why leave me on this dump of a planet so that I can suffer under the afflictions of sin and death because people are still foolish and so am I? To which God would say, so that you might share in the redemptive story that I've written into your life and written you into. Because your purpose is restored to be redemptive on behalf of God. It's a, it's a, a breath, a vapor of a life on this planet. Then you'll have all of eternity to experience the wonders of our full redemption. But while here, you are left on this place so that you can be comfort to the human race. To call them near to God in their affliction. Wow. And so he's saying our affliction though it feels heavy and hard, is for extraordinary purpose. God doesn't afflict us. Our affliction is the result of this planet and our foolishness and flesh and others. But our affliction is used of God in these ways. And it's beautiful. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, remember? I seek to know only Christ and more of Christ. I, 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 want to, I want to abandon all things. I consider all things rubbish in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he says, I want to share deeply in his sufferings that I might share also in his resurrection. Not, I won't go to heaven if I don't suffer. It's, we share in the resurrection, which is the redemptive work of Jesus, by being ambassadors for Christ, even in and through our afflictions. And what is God doing in our afflictions? He is drawing us near to himself. Now look. Look what he says. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Wow. Wow. If you or I are under affliction, it is for the comfort, wait for it, that is the drawing near to God and salvation of those around us. Do you understand how deeply valuable our affliction is? Though it is affected on us by the planet, by the enemy of God, and by our flesh, God has redeemed our afflictions by making it so powerful in our ability to be comfort to others because we are being comforted by God that it is actually for the salvation of other people. I mean, I stand here and I almost go, bring on the affliction. And then look what he says. Look what he says next. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Even being comforted is just a glimpse of what our eternity is going to be like. It is never full, full comfort. We are never fully in God's presence in the way we will be when we are redeemed. But it is enough to taste so that we can be comfort for others, share in Christ's suffering and comfort, and be part of the story connected to each other and to God in unique and beautiful ways. Or it can just make us physically comfortable and we lose all of that. See where we're going here? Now watch this. 
Watch this. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience. Now, this is crazy. Here it goes. The paradigm shift again, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings as we suffer. Do you see, he just said, you experience the comfort of God when you endure in the affliction. You see, you would think it would, it would say this, you experience the comfort of God when he alleviates the affliction, when he removes you from the affliction. When the affliction goes away, then you too will be comforted like us. So that's, a, that's an interesting hope, isn't it? Are you struggling? Don't worry. Wait a while and it'll go away. That's how, we, that's how we preach to each other, isn't it? Don't worry. It won't last a lifetime. Don't worry. Soon enough we'll be out of it. M- maybe not. M- maybe not. But that's not comfort. What we ought to be saying is, you experience the comfort of God, the calling near through a strong appeal in a friendly way to give you hope and new insight to see the world differently while you are in affliction, patiently enduring with us the same suffering. I'm telling you, when I was done with this passage, I literally thought, like, I need to start asking God to make sure I am afflicted often enough, otherwise I might forget him. Affliction is a beautiful, redemptive gift that was intended for evil by the enemy that God is weaving into great good welcome to the gospel. Watch this. Now, in consideration of all of that, is it any surprise that the next sentence appears? Watch this. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that you, that as you share in our suffering, you will also share in our comfort. Do you remember who he's writing this to? The church in Corinth who've been acting foolishly and are, are an enemy to him in many ways. And he's writing this to them. Though you have treated me terribly, though you have acted like fools, though you are getting nothing right, though you keep being fickle, though everything seems to go wrong with you, I ought to give up on you, but I'm not going to give up on you because my hope for you is unshaken. Paul will later on write to the church in Philippi in the book of Philippians and he will start the letter saying this, for I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion before the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's confidence in the mess that is the church in Corinth is not the church in Corinth and their ability to crawl out of a mess. It is in the promises of God and his ability to redeem any mess. And that is beautiful. That is beautiful. And it should give us great hope for the afflictions in which we currently function in our lives in the journey. Now watch this. My wife would tell me I'm shouting way too much, but I'm really excited about the gospel. I can't help it. Watch this. Now Paul does something so beautiful. Now Paul, like a, like a father sitting down with his children, will stop and say, I am not speaking out of the theoretical. I'm not saying this is theoretically true, I'm speaking out of the experience of knowing what this is. Watch this. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Two quick little side notes on this. Not side notes, points to this. Number one. If the poster says God will never give you more than you can bear, it is a lie. It is a lie. 
God will never tempt you in a way because he doesn't tempt and he will never allow you to be tempted in a way that you don't have a way out for. That was the intent of the verse, that there's always a way out of unrighteousness once you know Jesus. There is always a way out of unrighteousness, but his intent was never to say, don't worry, if it's heavy, you can hold it up. No, you can't. Paul just wrote, we were under such distress that we knew we were going to die. He didn't say we might die. He said, that's it. We, we, we resolved ourselves to dying. Paul is the guy that wrote in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So beautiful. Paul was the one that wrote in, in, in 1 Corinthians that though we, are, though we are under heavy, I mean 2 Corinthians, though we are under heaviness, it's okay, we are not crushed. Paul is the one that wrote on multiple occasions the extraordinary ability that though he's been beaten and stoned and everything else, it's okay. And then he writes here, in Asia, it wasn't okay. In Asia, I hadn't written Philippians yet, so I didn't have that verse. In Asia, it was so bad that we knew it was over. That's what he's saying here. You know how bad that must have been? Oh, let's take a look. Let's see how bad it was. Look at this. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Whoa. Paul does not tell us what happened in Asia. We don't know. Commentators have uh, surmised at this. Some say that it was a, a disease, that Paul had an illness, that Paul had, had gotten and some of the other guys had gotten. And in that time of history, that would have been certainly one of the things that would have been a, a heavy sentence of death on somebody. In the Jewish language, this kind of language of a sentence of death uh, can relate to that. That's how they would talk about illnesses of this caliber. It might, might have been persecution. Heavy persecution, like the kind of persecution he faced in Galatia when he was stoned and left for dead. It might have been that he was arrested and, and, and that he knew it was over because they were going to die. We, we don't know. Do you know why I think Paul didn't bother to tell us? Because he told us lots of details in other places. Here's why. Because as he unpacks the beauty of the mercies of God and the God of all comfort, he does not want us to categorize the kind of suffering so that we can say, God will comfort you if it's missional suffering. So if you're suffering because of mission, because you are persecuted, well then God will comfort you. But if you're suffering because you, know, you, you got a sickness or because somebody else is foolish or because you were foolish, well then, then God's comfort does not apply anymore. See, that's what we would do, wouldn't we? We'd write entire books about the kind, of, the kind of affliction that God comforts. And here Paul goes like this. I just want you to know in Asia we thought we were going to die. In fact, we, no, no. We knew we were going to die. We knew we were going to die. We had resolved ourselves to the fact that this affliction that had come upon us was so big that we could not stand under its weight. That's what Paul said. The burden became so heavy I could not bear it. That's big for Paul because he, he was in the ocean for like years drifting around. That's an exaggeration, not years, but a long time. Uh, he was bitten by poisonous snakes. He was stoned to death. He was, he was whipped by 39 lashes five different times by the Jewish people. I mean, Paul has died multiple occasions on this planet or at least almost died. And so for Paul to say, I knew, that, I knew this was the end, that's big for him. And he's doing this in the context of the God of all comfort. Now watch, now, now he's going to take everything he said and he's going to bring it home and go, here's why I said it. Here's why it's all true. Watch this. The God of all comfort, right? That's what he said. Look what he says. We felt that we had received the sentence of death, 
But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Welcome to our humanity. The second we don't need God, we start relying on ourselves. Telling you, man. You go, no, I no, I don't. Yes, you do, because I do too. The second I can bear the weight, I bear it. The second I can navigate it, I navigate it. I now I give God lots of props. Don't get me wrong. Oh God, this is all for your glory. Oh God, you're with me. Oh God, it's because of your great strength in me that I'm doing this. But the truth of the matter is we are self-reliant creatures. And we chase after self-reliance. And Paul says here, do you not understand people? The greatest need of your heart is to call you back to the place where we started in our humanity, where our entire reliance was on God for everything we needed and had. The place that we are going to again, but in a better version than ever. It is always the greatest need that God calls our hearts out of self-reliance and into reliance on Him in every area of life. And He has allowed the afflictions of this planet and the enemy of God and our flesh and other people's flesh to become one of the gracious and wondrous tools that he redeems and uses so that he can call our hearts back into reliance on God because here even Paul says we needed to be called back to reliance of God. You see what he said? See by definition he is assuming that in some ways Paul started relying on himself. So he said it was good for this to happen because it forced us and our souls to remember we don't even live without God. If we're going to die We don't die because we blew it. We die because God is not with us, right? And so we needed to lay there and say, whether we live or die right now, God, what we need to remember is that this is your story and it is your deal and we rely on you. And it is the next sentence that nails this down so beautifully. Verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. See, I didn't put the word again there. I did because the word again is about to come. Watch. So this is what he said. We didn't die. God delivered us after we found ourselves once again invited into nearness with God so that our reliance would be on God for all the other things we are going to do. And he did deliver us from this particular circumstance so that we might write this letter to you now. And he will deliver us. And he will deliver us. That is in the present reality of our life. He delivered us from a circumstance and he will deliver us from others as we continue. Now watch this, watch this. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Why would Paul do that? Now he's repeating it the second time. He just said he delivered us and he will deliver us. Then he says, on him we set our hope and he will deliver us again. Now Paul has transitioned into a far greater picture. Listen to this. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 5. I'm just going to read it. I don't even want you to read with me. I just want you to listen. Listen to why Paul can say in the midst of affliction in Asia, in a letter to the church in Corinth where they are messing it all up, why can he say, my hope for you is unshaken because I have set my hope on Christ that he will deliver us again. Watch this. Verse 1, chapter 21, book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I'll explain that another time. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God. 
Now listen, listen. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, here it is. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you see that? Comfort, the God of all comfort who will what? Call us near. And now watch, watch. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. The, the implication here is actually, it's kind of gross, that God would stick his finger into our eye, go behind the eye, and wipe away the reason for the tear. That's the implication of this particular sentence. It's not just like, oh. It's like, what caused the tear? I will go and I will gorge out so that the tears are no more. Our afflictions will be gone. Watch. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. But God bothers actually to say, you, you, I'm, I'm telling you verbally to write this down. Write it down because it's that true. See, Paul Paul could fix his hope on Christ, that Christ would deliver him out of his affliction because of that truth. Whether our affliction lasts half a lifetime, half a day, half a month, a whole lifetime is not the relevant point. The relevant point is that the God that we serve is the God of all comfort, of all comfort, which means he is the God that in our affliction will draw us near through strong appeal with words of kind friendliness so that he might become the person with us who speaks into us courage, new insight, and new hope that we might see life differently and walk into the next moment differently than the one before, whether or not we are physically comforted in that moment. He will come near. So our hope is set on him. And then Paul finishes here. You also must help us by prayer so that the many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Here it is, as Paul does so beautifully, as God does without exception after he's done talking about us and the benefits of the gospel to us, he goes, now participate in this redemptive story by actively stepping in. In this case, Paul says, even when our affliction is out of your hands, out of your ability to comfort, out of your scope to comfort, uh, geographically out of the way, whatever it is, then enter into prayer with us that your prayers might be your participation to bring about the comfort of God and pray for us that we would be drawn near to God, that we would rely only on God, and that God will deliver us as he sees fit, when he sees fit, for the salvation of others and for the comfort of others as he comforts us and saves us every day by reminding us that our reliance needs to be on him. Now that's the start to a book. That's the start to a book, and the rest of it kind of goes like this. It's pretty awesome that God reminds us today that he calls us into a space where he says, beautifully and extraordinarily, we will share with Christ and with one another in our affliction as God comforts us and 
that we know because of revelation and other spaces like that, that the earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. That the earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. We will carry great weights on this planet. We will be under great affliction, sometimes because we choose missional living, sometimes because life comes at us, sometimes because terrible things happen. But there is no sorrow that you and I will be under the weight of that we cannot bear and we legitimately cannot bear that God will not heal in his time. And while we are in affliction, he will comfort us. Call us near (laughs) with a strong appeal in kindness so that he person to person can speak to us new hope, new insight, new truth that would help us see newly and respond to the next moment differently than the one before. Let's pray. Oh God, God of all comfort, thank you. Thank you. That you would love us enough that in our affliction, that you would draw us near and not remove us from so that we would find ourselves close to you, relying on you, and in that then use that to use us in the lives of others in affliction, which is the story of this planet. God, thank you for your good news, the gospel, that reminds us again today that regardless of the circumstances in which we find ourselves, that you are at work completing the work that you began in us to bring us to completion so that Revelation 5, 1, uh, Revelation 21, 1 through 5 would, would become more and more of a taste of ours until we realize it fully when we leave this planet behind. Wow, God, thank you. Thank you. Burn these truths deeply into our hearts so that we might live in them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.